Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Please, dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Swing on by the dispatch.com to check out all of our uh, web content and sign up for our sweet, sweet newsletters and, and all the rest. Um, things are going gangbusters, but if you aren't a uh, if you aren't on the team yet, we would lo- still love to have you. Um, okay, so I'm just going to as uh, uh, I'm just going to be fully disclosed um, on this one. Just recorded literally minutes ago, fantastic conversation with Jonathan Rausch, who um, I'm proud to say is uh, a friend and, um, and someone I'm you know I've had my disagreements with them over the last few years or last 25 years, but, um, I've always had sort of bottomless respect for his intellect and his honesty. Um, and it went great. It's all about his new book and everything was wonderful, except for the fact that we did not realize that we were supposed to hold this conversation until pub date and, uh, which is next week. So that podcast will be coming next week. Then we were left with something of an existential crisis about how do we fulfill our obligations to our listeners to come up with a new podcast today. And it dawned on us that we had in-house um, our friend, our colleague, and um, um, and general uh, mensch when it comes to asking for favors, David French, uh, who just who immediately just got off taping an episode of Advisory Opinions, his his niche legal podcast, um, and uh, that he does with Sarah Isger, and he is joining us. We've done almost no prep for this, but. Dave and I always manage to find a way to talk about interesting things. Um, and we will even do some pop culture stuff at the end for those of you who want to either fast forward to it or know that they should just bail when we start turning to that. So I think David, welcome you, back if, to the remnant. Well, thank you. And I think if you had the choice, I mean, our, our pop culture stuff is premium, pure grade podcast content, Jonah. I agree. I am. I am with you. Um, and and you and I are basically the only, I mean, like Steve, Steve's ignorance is, is, is borderline grandpa ignorance about a lot of pop culture. Um, and Sarah knows pop culture, but her tastes are different. And then, mm-hmm. um, and the younger guys, I mean, there's stuff we can work with there, but we must mold them, you know? In the, yeah. In the, they need to learn really just right. listen and learn. Yeah. Um, that was actually because so many of them hadn't seen movies like network that I did that streamers guide to movies about politics just so that they would know how to like quote certain movies and get the <laughs> references when they're writing and stuff. So like 
years ago, Ramesh Panuru, our former colleague at National Review, um, had Rich Lowry write out a bunch of sports metaphors for him that he could A, use when needed, and B, now understand, because Ramesh didn't understand what any of the sports metaphors meant. Um, maybe we need to do a little bit of that for the kids. But we can be on, we'll start with more serious stuff. This morning, before I um, uh, did the conversation with Jonathan Rausch, I started your conversation. I have not finished it. I'm only about 15 minutes mm-hmm. into it, 20 minutes in. Your debate with, uh, for Barry Weiss and with, with Chris Rufo? Yes, Chris Rufo. That's the name, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I thought it was interesting where it was going. Uh, the praise for it has been over the top, so I'm, I'm interested in finishing it. Um, can you sort of just lay, I, I have follow-up questions, but can you just sort of lay out the, 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 the broad brushstrokes of your disagreement and then we can dive into it? Yeah. So it was a really, it was a, it was a really good conversation. I'm glad Barry hosted it. I'm glad Chris participated, but essentially the genesis of it is I've been tweeting a lot about these and writing about these anti-woke laws that you're seeing pop up in state legislatures and a lot of the concern over critical race theory. And one of my positions has been, no matter your position on critical race theory, let's not mess with the First Amendment. (laughs) Let's not mess with academic freedom. And so what Barry wanted to do is have uh, me on with Chris, who is very much a proponent of a lot of what you would call these anti-woke laws. And And I think we have to be really clear here. You have a lot of headlines that will say things like, so-and-so bans teaching critical race theory in schools or such and such, um, such and such state bans critical race theory. That's not really what's going, what's happening. What's happening is that you have a number of statutes that are being passed that are modeled kind of roughly on the, in some ways, the Trump administration executive order that was trying to ban critical race theory and diversity training in the federal government. And what they're doing is they're trying to ban the advocacy of certain kinds of divisive concepts. That's, that's the term that is used, divisive concepts. And so what we were arguing about was a number of things. One, how serious a problem is critical race theory? What is critical race theory? Um, what are the merits of these bills? Are they constitutional? And so we had a you know, I would say we started with a broad agreement that neither one of us are critical race theorists, mm-hmm. that we don't advocate critical race theory. I think there are th- things I find useful about it, but also things I find very problem- problematic about it. He's more down on it than I am. But we disagreed on what to do about it, how big a problem it is. And it was a, it was a really good discussion. I thought it was um, uh, certainly more... Um, illuminating than some of the other debates I've been involved in in the recent past. So, I mean, so explain it to me because I'm not sure where I come down on entirely on this one, at least in theory. Um, Presumably you would have no problem if a school board just simply said, we're not going to include this in the curriculum, right? Right. Like, so if a local school board is choosing between various kinds of curricula and then says, we're going to choose A over B because A, B is teaching critical race theory as sort of, you know, a normative fact and A is not, I don't have any problem with that. I mean, curricular decisions at local school district levels, that's for local schools and people should be deeply involved in that and they should be, 
you know, giving input into that? And if so, you know, doing so uh, with some courage, <laughs> if because you're going to have to because these are contentious topics, right? I mean, so I mean, I, and I should just for level setting, the headlines that bother me is, are these really dumb. I don't want to. I don't know. It's the Huffington Post, but like that sort of, or Daily Beast, but it's that from that sort of world, which say such and such state legislature is passing a law saying uh, kids can't be talked. Taught, taught about slavery and the idea that if unless you're teaching critical race theory you're not teaching uh, teaching about slavery is just nonsense i mean it's not like people right. haven't been teaching kids about slavery in public schools for a long time now and, and and in private schools i mean it dominates the education that my kid got out of you know for american history throughout her k through 12 life and Right. Um, but that said, okay, so if, if, and I, we can all agree that we need to teach about, you know, you had a very good Sunday piece about the, 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 the Oklahoma massacre and, mm -hmm. and, and I, I think we both agree. I mean, I read about it at length in Suicide of the West. You need to teach people about the, the, the bad parts of our history in part, because that's the right. only way you can teach them about the progress that we've made and on all the rest. And it's, it's, and it's, it's, it's important for all sorts of moral and pedagogical reasons. Okay. So that all said that out of the way, why, where, why does all of a sudden, if a state legislate, since school board is government to one extent or another, where does the first amendment all of a sudden get violated? If a state legislature says our schools can't have this stuff in the curriculum. Okay. So well, the, the state legislatures have been doing sort of three things. One is, um, you cannot teach these divisive concepts in K through 12, which is a where the state legislature is sort of at the apex of its power. So if, if you're looking at where do you lawfully have power to dictate curriculum, K through 12. Yes, absolutely. Now, it's not unlimited for reasons we can talk about um, in a bit. They're they're you know, it's just not the case that whatever the legislature says goes no matter what. But the apex of its power, K through 12. Um, teachers, the general consensus of, of uh, although it hadn't really been fully decided at the Supreme Court, the general consensus of federal law is that a teacher, a public school teacher in K through 12, has very limited to nearly non-existent independent free speech rights as a teacher in the classroom, that they are, they are to teach the curriculum. Um, so there is a, a broad control over the K through 12. Colleges are very different, very different. There is, again, the consensus of the case laws. If I'm a professor at a college, even a public college, I have First Amendment rights in teaching and in scholarship. And so if you ban the expression of certain kinds of ideas in a, on the part of a college professor, even a public college professor, you're going to run into real issues. And then the other one is grantees. So if, for example, you say we have this independent contractor that we hire to help us with environmental cleanup at XYZ site, and we're going to ban all of our contractors from engaging in CRT, diverse-based diversity training, that's generally going to be a no-go as well. So a lot of it depends on the scope, and some of these have broader scope than others. But if you're talking about where the schools have the most power, it's over K through 12. Um, 
if it's touching colleges, if it's touching grant, grant making, um, really surprised if any of that withstands constitutional scrutiny, like really, really surprised. And a lot of these people sort of on Twitter are going, well, if the government gives money, um, then we get to decide how it's used. Uh, you don't want to go down that road. You don't want to go down that road. Well, I, um, I actually, David, to the contrary, lots of people seem to want to go down that road. They're just oh, wrong they, to do so. <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of the people on the right who are strongly advocating going down that road don't realize what they're saying. <laughs> right. It, what they're saying is, well, we want to unwind about 25 years of precedent that we strongly support it. That has given, you know, an enormous amount of viewpoint neutral access on the part of Christians to public facilities and to even student fee funding and co at colleges and universities and um, has really helped broaden religious liberty. And they're saying now, well, wait a minute, if there's government money attached to it, then we can add whatever strings we want. Uh, no, that's not what you've been arguing for a quarter century, but now you're arguing it because of CRT. Um, that's, a, that's, that's classic bad facts trying to make bad law here. Well, also, I mean, I mean, we don't have to go too deep down this rabbit hole, but the the idea that this won't bite you in the posterior in the future, where the left says, "Look, you guys said we get to use if we give you money, we get to to do all yeah. of this stuff." Um, everything from like abortion counseling issues to you know, like you got these people talking about how the government should uh, regulate fact checking. Um, like the idea that this, I mean, I just saw, I just saw I, on Twitter a link to a poll that showed that something like the most enduring thing coming out of the Trump years is that people under 50 are overwhelmingly anti Trump and anti Trumpism. Yeah. And if you just extend that into the future as, is the pro-Trump oldsters move on the idea that like the lasting legacy from the Trump era is giving the administrative state or the left or whatever, or the government, the ability to police speech, um, because you thought that you were the wave of the future is <laughs> so bizarrely dumb to me, but it's all over the place. Yeah. You know, think of it like this. One of the things that the conservative legal movement has been very successful at, one thing we've sort of the conservative political movement has not been successful at is stopping the growth of government. That it has not been successful at. What it has been very successful at is um, preserving liberty in key ways in spite of the growth of government. So, for example, just to take take one example where we're about to get a decision from the Supreme Court of the United States, and this is States, for example, have an enormous and have extended an increasing amount of power into the foster and adoption world. And so this is an area that is heavily state regulated as foster and adoption. Well, we have a case before the Supreme Court where Catholic Charities is saying, hey, we have religious liberty in the way in which we participate in the foster and adoption process in spite of the fact that the state has essentially captured foster and adoption. Mm -hmm. That if we're a private entity participating in this, we have liberty. And in all likelihood, you know, I'll, I'll eat my words if this doesn't happen, but in all likelihood, they're going to win and conservatives are going to cheer because they're going to say, wait a minute, this is Catholic charities. Catholics get to be Catholic, <laughs> right? Right. Even if they're participating in a state-sponsored program. And this is 
something that's, you know, I, one of my biggest cases that I had as a, as a litigator, biggest cases as far as like sort of sheer monetary value combined with religious liberty was I represented what was called Badger Catholic, but at the time was the Roman Catholic Foundation of the University of Wisconsin, biggest student group at the University of Wisconsin. And they had been basically shut out of campus. Um, they had had their access to campus revoked. They had had their access to student fees where so all of these students were paying in hundreds of dollars a semester. And even though they were the biggest student group on campus, they could not get any fees at all. And we won that case. They got access to campus. They got access to some years, hundreds of thousands of dollars per year at student fees. And all of this again was, look, just because the fact that the state has its fingers in something does not mean that everybody who interacts with the state in that in that arena is now captive to the state, that their liberty is captive to the state. And if that's your position, then every time the state grows, then the, the bigger the state grows, the more it has its fingers in all of these different kinds of pots, then by necessity, your lib- liberty will diminish. And then the stakes of elections skyrocket because whoever is in charge is in charge of all of the things. Right. <laughs> Whereas the Bill of Rights conception is basically like whoever's in charge is not able to revoke these things. Right. They're not able to revoke your free speech rights, your religious liberty rights, your rights to due process, your protection against cruel and unusual punishment, unreasonable search and seizure. But we have now sort of on this new right and arguments that say, well, wait, when the state's involved, when the state's in- and this has been a, uh, um, you know, it's sort of a more far left argument for a while. When the state's involved, we run it, period, end of discussion. And, and I'd, I'd submit that's not where we want to go. So um, I was going to talk to you about the um, Nicole Hannah-Jones stuff, and maybe we'll circle back to it. But since you got us here, um, I don't know how much you followed it. I got into a thing. I wrote the G file about it on Friday and got into some stuff about it on Twitter. There is this argument out there that the, that conservatism that you and I basically grew up in, you know, at least professionally, um, got us Trump, right? That we have Trump because this is the, the, um, in some ways the natural inevitable consequence of what conservatism was as a, as an intellectual project and as a political project. And, um, I'm more open to the criticism about the political project part because conservatives made a lot of professional conservatives made a lot of compromises and Faustian bargains that have to do with sort of, you know, ratings driven, populist driven, political Mm -hmm. consultancy driven decision makings decisions. But, on the merits of the intellectual argument um, of conservatism, I just, I, I, you know, Josh Tate's an interesting guy as this historian who wrote this piece for the Bulwark about yeah. this. I'm just, I'm just completely unpersuaded by it. Um, um, I just say completely, I'm sure there, there are good points to be made. I just don't find them persuasive enough to have me change my opinion on this, but I'm, I'm kind of curious about where do you, how do you see it? Because you came from, came from a different, two different branches of conservatism than I did, sort of evangelical and the legal and the conservative legal movement. 
And yeah. that's not where I came from. So, you know, I'm wondering how you see all this stuff. You know, the longer I go through this era, the more I realize I grew up in a pretty specific bubble mm-hmm. that didn't, that should have let me see that Trump was coming, but didn't for interesting reasons. <laughs> and so the bubble I grew up in was the evangelical wing of the conservative legal movement. Mm-hmm. And what we were was among the dullest conventions um, of any sub faction of the right, I have to say, <laughs> unless you like really like to stay up late talking about Calvinism and the Constitution. I rest um, my case. <laughs> but, so what I grew up in was on the one hand, it was that part of the conservative, the Christian conservative movement that not everybody in our world, but a lot of people in our world were, the sky is falling, the end is coming, you know, the, the left wants to destroy Christianity in America, this is the end, this is the end, this is the end. And so th- all these mailers are going out, all of this hype is going out to folks that everything's, ab- you know, the America as you know it is about to end. Well, in the meantime, people like me are, are running around into federal courts, you know, FedSoc members, you know, having these, oh, he, going to CLE discussions about how to defeat speech codes. And we're winning a bunch of cases, like we're winning a bunch of cases. And so our position was, hey, these bad things are happening, but we're winning. We're beating them. You know, the speech codes are being beaten back. The, um, the sphere of religious liberty is expanding. I remember helping write even fundraising co- copy that would say, victory, there's hope, victory. But that was like a drop in an ocean of doom, Mm -hmm. doom, doom. And so I think what ended up happening is I kind of got, I don't know, like high on my own supply of, look at all this progress in the Mm -hmm. law. Look at, you know, 25 years ago, we didn't know we could do this. Now we can. 20 years ago, we couldn't do this. Now we can. And and, um, being encouraged by it, in the meantime, the whole rest of the public is getting doom, doom, including, you know, people I'm going to church with, people I know in my everyday life. And so I think a lot of the sort of fundraising, motivating, mobilizing aspect of my part of the conservative movement broadly was preaching doom, doom, doom. And I was part of a microculture that was going into these, these courtrooms and winning a lot of victories and kind of feeling pretty good about things. And, and, but that was not where everybody was. Yeah. <laughs> That's not where everybody was. Well, I mean, I, I don't want to like call out individual people. So I'm, 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 I'm synthesizing a broad argument that is probably unfair to individual people. But the, the basic argument, which we hear from smart people on the left and from some people who are even more, you know, sort of intensely into the never Trump stuff than you or I are. Um, the argument is, is that, you know, conservatism always had this sort of contempt for democracy or this ambivalence about democracy, this, um, and that it was, um, really, um, you know, I mean, you'll get really pejorative stuff. It was always a grift and a con and all that kind of stuff, which I think is, really unpersuasive um which is not to say that you and i don't have stories about many grifters and con artists on the on the (laughs) right but you know 
the guys who founded National Review, for instance, you know, they had some opinions that were just objectively wrong and really regrettable about, like, say, civil rights and, and some of that stuff, although that story is more complicated than some people want to make it. Um, but the idea that these people who were quite employable in other realms of life, other than working for a obscure intellectual magazine, that the idea that they were all doing it for some grift or con is just sort of nuts. And yeah. we know so many people who could have done other things with their lives, including just to throw it out there, you and me, like you can make a lot more money um, as an, as a private sector attorney, but you're doing this because you actually believe in it anyway. So I find that stuff really unpersuasive, but I think like the, the core point that I, I'm not the core point, but the point a lot of people are overlooking is this argument that conservatism was anti-democratic, that the current war on democracy that is going on right now on the right, which I think is being mischaracterized since most of the people on the right say they actually care a lot about democracy. They're just, they've just been duped by a conspiracy theory that says the election was stolen when it wasn't. Um, But I don't even hear, I don't even hear, you know, with the exception of Michael Flynn, even the true crazies talk about how, you know, we have to, we have to do what we have to do to protect democracy, not get rid of democracy. Um, But it seems to me the great testing point on this is the 40 or so cases that the Trump campaign brought to court and a whole bunch of Federalist Society, including Trump-appointed Federalist Society people, steeped in this conservative stuff, yeah. laughed them out of court. And if, yeah. if all of this was a grift and a con poised to sort of like wait our moment to sort of steal the country and steal the government, or preserve our hold on power, some of those decisions would have gone a different way, and yet none of them did. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that is, because I came up not in the pundit world, I came up in the legal world, including the, you know, the, the legal activist world and the litigation world. I was in all the meetings, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> and so people are telling me, well, what was really going on was racism. No. Right. You know, or what was really going on was this. No, that's not the case. I mean, people actually believe that you should interpret laws according to their original public meaning. Like that's the way we should interpret them. And the ones who are best and most consistent at it will often reach conclusions when they interpret those laws that are at odds with their express policy preferences. I mean, Scalia did that. I mean, mm-hmm. and so, so you're, you've got a lot of people are sort of doing these explainers about what was really going on about events that I was part of. Right. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking, no, that, that's not what was really going on. And, and truth be told, a lot of the people I was working with side by side were shocked by the Trump stuff, were really shocked by it, um, and have gone like me through this process of saying, hey, how could I miss this? Mm-hmm. How could I not see this? Um, but, you know, you and I came of age in the Reagan era and in the middle of the Cold War, and I write about this a lot, but look, the, 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 those of us who came of age in the Reagan era in the middle of the Cold War, we kind of came of age in politically at what you might call a sort of a golden age of um, conservative, sort of conservatives approaching American po- American politics with a real sense of idealism. Mm-hmm. You know, we're defending American values from Soviet communism. We're against the bad guys. <laughs> you know, 
we're defending and with these mega high crime rates, you know, we're defending everyday Americans from brutal, vicious violence, like our ideas. And so, you know, a lot of these histories that go deep into like the origins of the religious right with the defense of segregation academies, I'm not saying that didn't happen. But what I'm saying is that by the time I came of age in the conservative movement, if you're going to say, if someone is going to come into a meeting of religious liberty and pro-life attorneys and say, you know, what we really need to do is really preserve these all-white Christian schools in the South, we would have said, what are you, get out of here. Who yeah. are you? This is not what we do. This is not what we're about. Again, that's not to say stuff like that wasn't going on. But even in some of the critical histories of, for example, the religious right will say, those who initially got involved defending segregation academies knew that that wasn't going to resonate very broadly. Mm-hmm. And so other issues were going to resonate. And, and that's my generation. that It was the other issues that resonated. And so having been there, having been a part of this, and Jonah, you were a part of this, you know, heck, you found it in RO. <laughs> and I was reading from day one. And it was, a, it was about ideas. and. And it was about specific kinds of ideas that we believe, to use catchphrases of the current day, advance the common good in some pretty specific and concrete ways. And, and to sort of say that because of Trump, all that was, you know, a facade, it just wasn't. I mean, I don't know how other way to say it. It just wasn't. That isn't to say that there are some people who are in it for grift, who are, who are in it because advancing constitutional conservatism was seen as the best way to oppose Obama. And that was the real thing at their heart of hearts. But to say that there was no there there, that's just, that's just completely false. <laughs> yeah, no, I, like, I, 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 I'm with you. I just, you know, my first job out of college was after getting back, I should say my first job after coming back from Prague um, was as a research assistant at the American Enterprise Institute. And then my first you know, um, and I grew up with a very political parents who were involved in all this stuff. And, you know, there were, there were aspects of my mom that were politically incorrect and all that kind of stuff. But, um, this idea, and then, you know, and then I came to national review and this doesn't mean that like I didn't have disagreements and we had an R, there were some issues with Derbyshire, as you might recall, and yeah. you know, these things happen, but the idea that somehow everyone at NR or the people I would meet, certainly at AEI, um, or all the stuff I used to do for YAF before it's taken the turn it has, you know, they're just, you just didn't have racist conversations. You know, you just didn't have, you know, um, uh, you know, you know, mustache twirling conversations about what we really need to do is seize power and then get rid of all this democracy stuff. I mean, it just wasn't where people's heads were at. And, so I mean, my my part, my partial explanation of all this has to do with the fact that, for complicated reasons that we don't need to dwell on, you know, but the GOP and the sort of conservative intellectual class basically rode the tiger of populism for so long that eventually they were terrified to get off, and um, and and now a lot of them don't even understand why they should get off. Right. I mean, like right. the corruption that comes from populism in, in all these different ways, both as a business model, but also as a political model, 
Um, I was just talking to Jonathan Rausch about this. At some point, people's minds change. Their brains change. And all of a sudden, stuff that would have horrified them 10 years ago seems like a great way to go. And and so for me, the issue isn't the integrity of conservative ideas. It's the corrupting nature of populism and the problems with social media and all of these other things. Well, let me add, let me add something else in that might cause some listeners to get a little upset. Um, it's not just a populism; it's the southernification of our populism. Okay, so the center of gravity culturally, politically, of the GOP in my lifetime has moved south fast. Okay, and decisively, and the. The reality is, and look, I was born in Opelika, Alabama. The first football game I went to, I was six years old at Death Valley in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I grew up in rural Kentucky, went to college in Nashville. Like, I come by my zealous SEC football uh, sense of cultural imperialism, honestly. I know the South. I'm like, I'm a son of the South. And the GOP in the South had this interesting, kind of interesting conflict, which was, the Main Street conservatives, you know, the Chamber of Commerce conservatives who would use phrases like describing Atlanta, the city too busy to hate, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and who really tried to turn the page on a lot of that really just viciously racist, massive resistance that wasn't super long ago, by the way. Right. <laughs> it was not super long ago. Um, essentially, by appealing to sort of Chamber of Commerce type you know, this, we just got to turn our backs on this. And, and there was a moral argument for sure. There was a pragmatic argument for sure. But Southern, white Southern populism is not traditionally the best American voice. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's just put it like that. And the more the GOP becomes defined stylistically, culturally, substantively, by white Southern populism, the more it, it, it the worse it's going to be. In, and so in I my view. did not, I, obviously we can attest, we did not plan on doing this. I've got pushback on this because, mm-hmm. uh, I actually, and I, I written about this a little bit and I've wanted to do a, like an actually deep, you know, sort of semi-reported piece about this for a long time. I think that the GOP and conservative media to a certain extent suffers from the fact that it has been captured by bridge and tunnel populism from New York city. Hmm. And, um, like just indulge me for a minute. Um, so a huge number of the, of the early Trumpy Fox personalities are all from like New Jersey, Long Island, um, or the outer boroughs. And then they moved to New Jersey or Long Island. They were in, they were all hugely pro Giuliani as I, as was I at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, and this, and they had this narrative of how New York city was once this golden, beautiful Shangri-La. And then they, which sometimes means the blacks or whoever took over ruined it. New York did have a very bad 1970s um, and into the 1980s. And then Rudy Giuliani comes along with this bridge and tunnel populism 
and he saves New York City. And I remember back in the day, Chris Starwalt saying to me, there is something about Donald Trump that tickles the same erogenous zone that uh, Rudy Giuliani did. And you look at people like Hannity, Bill O'Reilly, all these guys, they have this glorified notion of what New York once was. They're super nostalgic for it. Trump has been playing that game in New York City. That's where he's got all his media chops. Um, and Fox is so dominated by that sort of Bernie Carrick, you know, Hannity, O'Reilly, New York Post kind of, you know, populism stuff that it turned out the shocking thing about it was how scalable it was. And that you actually, like Donald Trump, who knows nothing of the South. I mean, literally nothing of the South. Right. Um, except that he has a golf course in what, Virginia or in, in Florida or whatever. But the that kind of always stand with the cops, the, you know, always stand against those people kind of thing, super law and order, but actually socially kind of liberal, turned out to be much more scalable in in a lot of ways and so it's maybe it's just sort of a perfect storm where you have the convergence of the voters who are populist and the messaging which comes basically out of four square blocks in manhattan that's also kind of populist makes sense yeah well i think so when i was watching trump interact with crowds like big crowds in south carolina and alabama and mississippi yeah he he didn't have a mississippi accent <laughs> you know yeah. he he didn't, he wasn't like the two, the two classes of Americans with the strongest Southern accents are politicians and trial lawyers. It's because it's an, ex, part of it's like an exaggerated cultural defense. He didn't have those accents, but the same ethos was there. And, and I've written about this, but part of that ethos is the shame honor culture. Mm -hmm. It is the, if, because one of the things we've talked about a lot is, how much grievance animates the right these days. It's you, you dissed us in this way, you dissed us in that way. This has got ancient roots in the South. I mean, this is something that people have written about and observed for centuries in the South is this shame honor. You come against one of us, you come against all of us. We need, we demand our respect. We demand our respect. Well, there's a lot of that in, you know, northern northeastern working class populism as well. Sort of this you South cannot Boston. Dis <laughs> Yeah, you cannot disrespect us. We demand our respect. If you disrespect us, we're going to strike back 10 times as hard. And and so that's a key part of southern populism. It's one of the things that, you know, bound the southern upper classes and the southern working classes during, you know, the pre-civil antebellum times and during the during the civil war and i think that you've got a lot of that going on we demand our respect how dare you disrespect i remember um a couple of years ago i was at a, a southern baptist meeting i was with a bunch of southern baptist theologians and pastors and i was talking about um you know some of these issues and somebody said well you know what do you say to a congregation when you when you'll talk about these things and they're feeling like you're talking down to them? Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, this and 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 it wasn't you're stupid, it wasn't your, you know, it was just I disagree. And even the very the very fact of disagreement 
was considered to be talking down, mm -hmm. talking, you know, disrespecting. And, you know, there's this interesting study done in the University of Michigan years ago in which they did this sort of study where, where male students, they're bump, they bump into male students, people are sort of intentionally bumped into, and they're sort of, they, they then sort of test their physiological response. And the Southern male students had a measurably different and elevated physiological response hmm. to being bumped into. <laughs> and that there, there is something there about this sort of shame, honor, you're coming against us culture. Um, that that Trump connected with mm -hmm. and he he kind of got it he got it instinctively he doubled down on it he tripled down on it i'm with you i stand for you i'm fighting for you you know when they disrespect me they're really disrespecting you you see this in the right wing punditry all the time if i criticize trump then somehow i'm also mocking 74 million people right. who voted for him and you once you see this it's like you can't unsee it it is this mass explosion of sort of shame honor culture onto our body politic and it's it, it it's profoundly negative <laughs> it's profoundly negative and it creates a permanent sense of grievance and anger and that's not to say that there aren't elitists and there aren't people who do talk down and there aren't people who are um you know condescending and vicious and all of that they they do exist. So there are actual, you know, targets out there. But when you form a political movement around that ideology, ideas, all of these things become way secondary. Yeah. Just way secondary. Well, and, and, and there's also just the very frustrating hypocrisy of saying that you're against trigger culture and snowflakeism and all these kinds of things. And then if I say, well, you, you know, the election wasn't stolen. It's just an enormous lie and propaganda. How dare you? You know, how dare you, sir, that, you know, question my belief and blah, blah, blah. How dare you say that about Donald Trump? I was like, how is that different than trigger warning stuff in, in, in snowflake culture? If like you can't hear an objective fact about something, um, without going off of the rails. And, um, no, I was talking about, about this with Roush. I'm increasingly, I think there are problems on the right. Obviously, we both do. There are problems on the left. Obviously, we both do. I am increasingly coming to the position that the problems on the left and the right are less um, inherent to right-wing thought or left-wing thought and more problems of America that when they manifest themselves in people who are the most committed to being left-wing or right-wing, they will manifest themselves in different ways, in part because there's institutional asymmetry. There aren't a lot of conservatives who run elite universities. Right. So their approach to these things is going to be different. But that has to do with opportunity you know, um, and, and context, not about the sort of fundamental problems, which are that we are we live in a moment where our feelings are supposed to be more important than anything else, and that that if you disagree on facts, that is somehow calling into question someone's self-worth. Um, and, and that's the through line that is the problem with the culture. And then we can talk about how, yeah, so there's right-wing versions of it and there are left-wing versions of it. But my point is, is that the right-wing and left-wing versions of it have less to do with right-wing and left-wing ideology and more to do with these more endemic problems. Because getting back to like the CRT stuff, 
there's been political correctness and critical race theory is, I mean, I mean, I remember reading Derek Bell's, you know, I mean, there, that stuff has been around for 35, 40 years at yeah. minimum. And then if you go back and you look at deconstructionism and all that, it's been back even further than that. There's some other reason why it's catching on now, other than like more compelling ideological arguments. It has to do with things going on in the culture. Yeah. I mean, uh, so my first year of law school, I had six sort of major subject professors. Five of the six were crits. That's what yeah. we called them. Crits. Um, but yeah, I think you're exactly right. There is a sense, and we I just talked about this with Sarah in our podcast. There is a sense at which we have a collective feeling that you can't make me feel bad. Mm -hmm. And if you make me feel bad, there's something fundamentally wrong with you. And that gets to to come full circle, some of the K through 12 stuff where theoretically the government's power is, well, not theoretically, actually the government's sort of power is at its height over teacher speech. And a lot of what these bills do is they don't ban critical race theory. They, they prevent you from saying, from making an argument. In other words, that white privilege exists or that there is such a thing as systemic racism or that... Um, <laughs> In one bill in Tennessee, that one creed is superior to another creed. So, I, does this mean you can, can't say, well, I, Nazism ba is bad? I can't say that. So, I'll just teach you about the tenets of national socialism. I mean, right. at least it's an ethos. It, <laughs> yeah. It's, so, the question I asked Sarah was when you were growing up, did you argue with teachers? Like, did a teacher advance a point of view that you disagreed with? And it, and, and it would and and what we talked about is that for both of us, we spent our entire K through twelve life is from what we remember is some of our best teachers, we had actual disagreements. Sure. They took a position, you know, when I'm in tenth grade and I took a, an opposing position, and unless they were a bad teacher, in other words, they're gonna grade me poorly, which is a for a disagreement or discriminate against me academically because of a disagreement, I actually profited from that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I still remember some of those exchanges and they could get heated. You know, when I was 18 years old, we we're talking about the Cold War and a teacher called me a patriotic monkey. <laughs> <laughs> not that I remember it 34 years later, not, but isn't being a patriotic me. monkey better than being an unpatriotic monkey? I think so. That's the best, you know, best kind of monkey. Now, uh -huh. to be different, distinguished from a nationalist monkey. Uh -huh. We don't want yeah. nationalists. That's right. But patriotic. And, but we're in this environment where we say, I don't want to hear an idea propagated that makes me feel upset. And we know, and, and as you're saying on the right, you can identify that snowflakeism in elite academy, the elite academy all the time. It's right. look at those snowflakes. But then on the left, this immediate, what are you saying about the 74 million? What are you saying about us? And that, again, that's connecting with that sort of shame, honor, tribal, grievance-based populism. And that's one of my issues with these bills, is it's sort of inculcating this view that says, we're going to protect kids from the propagation of ideas. And we're going to limit the ability of a teacher to advance an idea. And you got to be careful about that. You have to be careful about that. All right. So... Now that we've come full circle, do you think it would be okay for a state legislature to say, we are not going to, we're going to ban the teaching of 
not Nazi history, right? Right. But, but the the promulgation and teaching of Nazi principles. Um, do you think that that would be okay for state legislators to do? Yeah, well, so a couple of things. One is, if somebody is actually advancing Nazi principles, they're probably already violating Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. So, yeah, so the Civil Rights Act prohibits hostile environment amongst its sort of permutations, prohibits hostile environment harassment on the basis of race and, and education. So if somebody is actually promulgating Nazi ideology they got a Title VI problem. So a lot of these sort of extreme hypos, so does somebody, is somebody advancing Klan ideology in the classroom? Well, if they're doing that, you know what they're doing? They're violating Title VI. That's racial harassment. Okay. Um, and so the, the existing law is already going to provide a lot of protection. Um, existing civil rights law. What we're talking about, not so much, you know, is the Klan right? Were the Nazis right? Because that's not, that's, that's not a problem. Like we don't have that problem in American education right, right now. Um, what we're talking about is people who um, would say white privilege, talking about sort of white privilege is something real and advocating it as something real or that systemic racism is something real and advocating it as something real. And I can easily imagine some critical, where some critical race theory, and I wrote a long French press about this, I can easily imagine some areas where critical race theory can violate Title VI and create mm. hostile environment harassment. So a lot of the edges, you'll see people who are just railing on whiteness. Right. Well, can't rail on blackness <laughs> right. without violating Title VI. And if you're going to be railing on whiteness, you're going to have an issue. Or if you do things like segregating by race, um, you know, various kinds of academic programs, you're going to have some Title VI problems. But again, these laws go way beyond that, way beyond that. So that if, let's say I'm a civics teacher and high, a senior, that's when I took uh, civics was in high school was as a senior, which was mixed in with a lot of American history. And I start talking about uh, arguing that there is such a thing as white privilege historically. Um, as opposed to there's an argument that white privilege exists, but I'm not going to take a position on it. Um, that's when these laws kick in. But the problem is that how do you define when somebody's advocating something versus teaching about something? Mm -hmm. The chilling effect is immense, just immense. So if I'm a teacher, what am I doing? I'm going to pull way back from all of this stuff. And some listeners might say, good. Yeah. <laughs> but that's, you know, th that's not, again, that, that rests on sort of, I have this hostility to an idea and I want to use the power of the state as much as I can to stamp it out. And I don't, that's a dangerous place to go. And, and just both as a matter of principle, because these are extremely complex issues about race in America. They're so complex. And to sort of say, what we're going to do is we're going to um, make a create a chilling environment on speech to where people don't really feel free to speak about it. This really super complex, super important issue. As a matter of principle, I think that's wrong. As a matter of pragmatism, where are these lines? Where are these lines? These lines are not so self evident. And when I was debating Rufo, I read to him a portion of one law, and it was quite broad and o quite overbroad. And then he read another portion that was like, well, nothing about this is intended to 
you know, essentially violate the Constitution. But that's not the way the law works. The law looks at a specific provision and chart and says, I'm if I comply with that specific provision, is the law, is the Constitution going to be violated? Then that law is struck down. Mm-hmm. We're not a general savings clause that says, well, we don't really intend to violate the First Amendment isn't going to really save the law because we're not charged with knowledge of First Amendment jurisprudence. If it's telling me I can't say something that the law allows me to say, typically, that's going to be struck down. Again, K through 12 is more difficult. Colleges and, and beyond, it's pretty clear. But again, do we want to be doing this? Do we want to be doing this? Like, um, well, I mean, look, I, I guess I'm I'm more ambivalent about this than 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 you are because I'm not the free speech guy that you are. I mean, I'm pro free speech, but again, that's why I started by saying if a school board does it, there's no real problem, right? Because they're mm-hmm. they're trustees of of the community tasked with coming up with the best way to teach our kids. I personally think while at the college or grad school level, there's a lot that is worth talking about in CRT stuff, but I don't think it's good for our society at all to teach white kids to have struggle sessions, um, denouncing their whiteness or to teach black kids that they are simply by virtue of the color of their skin victims. I just think it's a too, it's like having, it's like doing some forms of sex ed too early. It's just a bad idea. It doesn't mean there aren't important ideas in there, but you should be introduced to some ideas at an appropriate age in an appropriate way. And I think that a lot of this anti-racism stuff is pretty pernicious. It's not Nazism, but it does reduce people down to this sort of iron cage of identity it does traffic in a lot of intergenerational guilt stuff, which I think is contrary to the, the best principles of the country. And so I would rather solve this stuff without resort to state legislatures doing any of these things that, that, that do sound problematic. But my only point is, is that I don't want to go down the road you're describing in terms of the threats to free speech, but I also don't want to go down the road of teaching kids all of this kind of stuff. And it seems to me a more grown up political class would say, Hey, let's not muck with stuff that is going to bite us in the ass on this first, on these first amendment issues. Let's have a serious conversation about this within the context of the educational establishment and come to some kind of compromise that we can all live with. That seems like the, the, the cooler head prevail approach seems like the smart one to me. Well, I, I, you know, I agree with a lot of that. I mean, I think a lot. So some of the, some of the things that you're talking about, like making white students do struggle sessions is going to get into veer into title six, mm-hmm. um, categories. And so, you know, singling out people on the basis of race, treating them differently at worst, materially inf- impacting their educational environment because solely because of their race, you're yeesh. I mean, if I was still practicing law, I would listen to a parent who came in and said, I think that violates Title VI and let's go to federal court. I would think hard about doing that. The issue that I have is not, okay, if I'm a parent in, you know, X county schools and I found that Mrs. Jones is sharing the, you know, fifth grade teacher is showing the pyramid of oppression, which is a long standing sort of like diversity, equity, inclusion kind of visual aid that's depending on what it looks, depending on its content can be pretty ridiculous. 
Mrs. Jones is sharing the pyramid of oppression in class and and telling all the white students, you know, that they're responsible for slavery. And these are fifth graders. And I go to the school board and I say, what are you going to do about, you know, this is this is wrong for these reasons. Um, versus, hey, in X county schools, did you hear about Mrs. Jones? So now we're going to pass a law mm-hmm. in the state legislature because of Mrs. Jones and X county schools and Mrs. Smith and, and Y county schools. This is a lot of what's going on. What A lot of what's going on is people are getting in their inboxes PowerPoints that are popping up here and there around America and going, we got to stamp this out. You know, whereas when I, you know, not to go all when I was growing up, you know, but when I was growing up, if we had a bad teacher, we'd go to the principal. Yeah. We'd go to the school board. And the thing about this that I prefer is it requires you to do something. I'm kind of tired of a political culture that says, I see something wrong in my community. Um, it might be really hard to do something about it in my community. So I'm going to want my state legislature or Congress to do something about it. Um, I'm a big believer. And if you feel passionately, passionately about a subject, get involved locally because two reasons. One, you're going to have a lot more ability to impact what's happening than if you're tweeting or Facebooking. And number two, you're going to learn a lot more about the subject. And you're often going to find out it's a lot more complicated than you might think. Or and you might even find out, you might find out that the people on the other side are bad and awful, but you might find out that they're people of goodwill who you can reach some sort of compromise with. And, but it, we just keep saying to our, to sort of this right-wing public, and also this happens on the left, of if you see isolated incident X, Y, and Z, or you see a lot of incidents of X, Y, and Z, then you got to go to the most powerful entity to deal with it rather than the most local entity to deal with it. And I think that's causing, that's just raising the temperature of our national politics endlessly. No, I, I, I agree with that. I just, you know, I agree with that. I, I, I don't see any massive problem in theory. I'm with you that in practice, it's super problematic, but in theory, state legislatures are still kind of local if they want to take the heat for saying, you know, we're not going to teach this kind of stuff in K through 12, um, and they can steer clear of violating the first amendment, uh, as long as it's even done at the, at the, even on the state level, that's local enough for me to allow for correction, right? It's, it's, I'd be mm-hmm. much more horrified by Congress doing something like that. And, um, but I just, um, I just don't see all the equities on one side of the equation or the other. I mean, right. I, I think some of the CRT stuff is legitimately bad. I think it's bad for the country. Um, and again, I'm making an important distinction between teaching about our problematic history. I think that should be done. I think that was being done. Um, but teaching the sort of all of the the white privilege, you know, uh, you know correct your whiteness stuff, but also think of yourself as white stuff is, is, is deeply pernicious. And, um, and it leaves out the fact that like, yeah, there are things, there are certainly arguments for white privilege and all that kind of stuff. There aren't a whole lot of examples right now in the popular culture of people, um, trying to pretend that they're white 
Um, there is a, you know, I mean, like I think it was Clarence Thomas who said, if there's so much white privilege, why did Elizabeth Warren pretend she was an Indian? You know, there's something else going on in the culture and I think it's all gross. And I wish people would, I, you know, I grew up in New York city. I never once began a sentence. Well, as a white person, I think, and I would like to hear less of that kind of stuff in America. Um, and I think the CRT stuff creates more of it and that it's a legitimate problem, even if the remedies aren't a good idea. Cause I guess we're, yeah. Yeah. And, and, but again, you know, a lot of this, when we keep using the term CRT to describe what these laws are aiming at, they're not panning CRT. Like yeah. they they have specific words on a page that ban what's on the words on the page. And they're not, they're both over and under inclusive. So if you're wanting to ban CRT, they're, they're not even close to encompassing all of CRT, but they ban a bunch of stuff that isn't CRT. Yeah. And then the other, the other thing that's kind of, and especially the left is very good at inventing new words. So, Oh, well, and CRT itself is a slippery thing to get, you know, yeah. uh, If you're going to say, what is, what is critical race theory and define it quickly for me? Well, that's a trap right then and there, because right. there's a lot of critical race theorists who disagree with each other on what it is. But the, but here's, here's a tendency that I'm seeing that I'm really alarmed about, and that is because people don't really know what it is, and it is something that is difficult to define and understand even under the best of circumstances. I mean, I, I was in law school at the height of CRT, uh, sort of CRT influence in the law, at Harvard Law School. And I left, you know, still confused about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. It's very jargony. It's very, yeah. you know, there's a, and, but what ends up happening in a lot of these spaces is if I'm concerned about qualified immunity or police brutality or writing about the Tulsa race massacre or things like that, then all of a sudden I'm woke or I'm influenced by CRT. And so what's ending up happening is that that's becoming a stand-in in parts of the right for any kind of inquiry into race issues sort of beyond what is permitted within the mainstream conventional wisdom of Republican politics. And that's a really bad development in my view. Um, there, yeah, I mean, I, think, I mean, it's it's very reminiscent of the stuff we saw in the about a decade ago where everything was Frankfurt School Marxism. Yeah. You know, and it's like, can you give me an explanation of what Frankfurt School Marxism is? And, you know, are you more on, you know, Hockheimer's side or Adorno's side in your or is it Marcuse? <laughs> and they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I was like, yeah, exactly. You know, um, yeah. Um, and uh, and I do think that, look, I mean, look, white supremacy works the same way. Right. Both yeah. sides are looking for these weaponizable concepts that will do the arguing for them rather than actually making a case about what they're for or against. Do want to very quickly move to, um, other stuff that we're for and against, um, specifically, um, a spate of pop culture stuff. Let's start with stuff that we're, we're going to agree. Um, mayor of East town. We both seen it. Uh, we will try to avoid spoilers here. Um, but you've been watching it. I just finished it yesterday. What'd you think? I really, really enjoyed it. I really liked it. Um, it w- at first, I felt like it was kind of 
gimmicky in a way, in a way that Saturday Night Live parodied. Saturday Night mm -hmm. Live has a parody of it, of like, this show is good because of its very authentic, specific regional accents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they do a distractingly good job of sort of, re, of recreating certain, you know, accents and clothes and sense of place. But the actual story itself is really good. And, and two things about it. One, it comes by its twists. Honestly, I feel like without spoiling anything, mm -hmm. everything clicks into place in a way that a lot of whodunits don't where you're thinking, Oh, you're just saying that to surprise me. Right. You know, no, all of it come, it comes by it honestly. And the other thing is, I just really liked a portrayal of a cop that wasn't like, and, and at the, I don't know if you watched the after the show segment interview mm -hmm. with uh, Kate Winslet. She said, we weren't trying to make her an action hero. Yeah. And when you have a cop doing cop stuff and they're not an action hero, they're just a regular person and this is their job. And then as part of their job, they're exposed to all of this awful stuff. I just thought it was like an emotionally honest show and and it was kind of refreshing to see a, a cop show now i know there are others out there it wasn't a cop as an action hero yeah just a cop as a person doing a job and like she's constantly getting hurt <laughs> you know yeah. um she's not just you know she's not taking down the bad guys with mma moves she, she somehow learned off screen i mean no i i i liked it i thought it was raw emotionally honest well done came by its twists honestly i liked it yeah, no, I did too. I liked it. It held my attention. Did you see that Brian Cranston series? Uh, was it called Your Honor or something like that? Yeah, yeah. That didn't. Uh, that got really annoying really fast. The first two or three episodes, I like, oh, well, they're really setting a good foundation here. And then it became increasingly implausible and kind of ridiculous, I thought. And it had a bad ending. But this managed to stay plausible. I kind of feel like they should have taken some of these events and stretched it out into like eight or 10 episodes instead of seven, yeah. because some of the plot line resolution stuff felt really forced and sudden um, to me, not really forced, but like, wow, they'd spent a long time building that up and then they just got rid of that. You know, that's convenient. Mm -hmm. You know, there's some of that stuff. I, I think they could have broadened out the pace a little bit. Um, yeah, I so, agree with that. But, um, but, you know, it's sort of like, that's a good criticism of a show. It's like, you know, my daughter wanted WandaVision, wanted the whole first season just to be reenactments of 60s sitcoms, um, <laughs> rather than like rush it to the sort of superhero stuff. And yeah, if you're saying to a show about a show, they should have had two or three more episodes. That's a different criticism than saying it was two or three episodes too long, you know? Um, yeah. And I got to say, Kate Winslet managed... Like one of one of the problems, like I saw that um, um, Angelina Jolie firefighter movie that came out. Yeah, those wish was dead. It's not bad. It certainly yeah. exceeds expectations. Um, and uh, but like they cannot make Angelina Jolie ugly. Um, <laughs> no, you can't. And I'm I'm trying to say this in ways that won't offend anybody, but like like. She looks like throughout the entire thing as a sort of you know middle-aged supermodel who's got some soot on her face. 
Right. <laughs> and, yeah. and I'm sure there are very attractive uh, smoke-jumping firefighter women out there, but they don't look like Angelina Jolie and her hair, their hair isn't perfect and, and they don't always look like they're wearing eyeliner and there's all sorts of things. They've managed with Kate Winslet, who's an attractive woman. I'm not saying that, you know, she's ugly or anything like that, but they managed to keep her within the parameters of normal human aesthetics rather than, um, like a lot of actresses don't like the idea of, you know, go, looking like they don't have any makeup on or any that kind of stuff. And she, right. she owned all that stuff really well, I thought. Yeah. She looked like a regular person. Like, like a person, a yeah. person. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in, in a way, to connect with something I've been, other shows I've been watching, it was almost like an American version of the best of like the British crime dramas. Mm -hmm. The British crime dramas, um, Peaky Blinders is, different Peaky Blinders is fashionable and all of this stuff yeah. and everybody's good looking but British crime dramas are like regular folks solving crimes yeah. and that's what this was whereas most American cop shows it's sort of like uh, you know UFC trained runway models you know right. taking on the bad guys and this was not that at all yeah. and and so yeah I, I thought I, I enjoyed the heck out of it I think if listeners pick it up and start watching it and you can binge it now you've got all seven right episodes available it's yeah i mean it's, the, i guess the point what i would make is that even if you even if some of the plot stuff you're like you have criticisms of it's a fun show to be looking for things to criticize because it's good enough that you're like you know you want to guess what's going to happen next and all of that kind of thing um it's sort of like you can you can argue with breaking bad about this plot line or this character or whatever, but it's the fact that it's so good that yeah. makes you want to engage it that way. Okay. So then something that I think we're actually going to agree on is, uh, it's Jupiter's legacy, right? Jupiter's legacy. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. is the Netflix. Netflix answer to the boys. Right. Uh, more or less. It's a superhero thing. Um, you finished it. Um, I did. I just finished it yesterday. what did you think? Okay, so, you know, my general view of superhero content is all superhero content is good to some degree. Uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> I enjoy superhero content. I will say this. I started off believing it to be on the lower tier of superhero content and ended up thinking of it in the middle tier. Mm -hmm. So it got better to me as it went on. Um, I think it's totally worth watching. It does well on one metric that is very important to me, which is superhero combat. Mm -hmm. Is the superhero combat sort of like viscerally good? Like I thought the the actual confrontations of the superheroes and the portrayal of the sort of the raw power of the superheroes, I'm always interested in that. Good. The desire to make it grittier, um, kind of in the way the boys is, but not being nearly as gritty as the boys. Yeah. <laughs> Which is hard to do. Um, I mean, it would be hard to be grittier than the boys um, yeah. and still be watchable. Right. Yeah, the boys red, red lines it for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, didn't always work for me. Mm -hmm. uh, and But I did think it was interesting, this sort of conflict, without too many spoilers, it's pretty obvious from the beginning, this conflict between the older generation's code, which is you just don't kill people, period. 
And the newer generation, which is facing sort of a raw, more ferocious and vicious breed of, of supervillain that's killing people, killing superheroes. And I thought that was an interesting tension. Um, I liked that. Yeah, overall, I, I enjoyed it. And I found myself as it was over saying, I, I'm, looking, I'm actually looking forward to season two. And I guess we'll get one because it was a consistent Netflix top 10 as I was, you know, while I was watching it. So w- what did you think? So I'm I'm basically with you. I actually probably had a lower opinion of it when I first started watching it and a higher opinion of it when I finished it than you. Um because I agree there's it takes you it takes a while to figure out what they're going for, the flashbacks to the 1930s stuff. Um it's like aesthetically they wanted it to be um it's, like, it's sort of like, what if the comic book culture of the 1930s was real? Um, right. And so there's a certain amount of that, you know, mystical island Shazam kind of stuff, trying to make that seem more real. Um, ultimately, I think it worked well enough on that part. I agree with you that the, the fundamental, intellectually interesting part about it is all this stuff about the code. And I, mm-hmm. I, I, I want to be clear. I think the code is wrong. Um, on mm-hmm. the, on the central question of thou shalt not kill. I think yeah. you could write the code. Like, I, th- this is a spoiler. If people don't want to know that, I mean, this is like in the first, I think the first episode, but if, 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 if you have a problem with it, you might want to skip the next 30 seconds or so. Um, the idea that somehow you should in a moment of extreme duress, foreclose the option of using lethal force against someone who may be about to kill not just your parents, but like a small city, a population of a small city strikes me as nuts. Good Samaritans, yeah. normal citizens have that right under the law. Um, yeah. And you could, like, I don't think even Batman with that do not kill stuff if he had no other option would be like, ah, my hands are tied. I guess I have to let the Joker, you know, uh, detonate the nuclear weapon in downtown Gotham. I mean, like you, sometimes you can kill people. Um, even if you're a superhero trying to uphold a code. And so I felt that was a little forced, but what I really liked was the, I normally don't like psychological stuff, the way the code, was in some ways used as a psychological crutch um, mm. for the utopian. And I found, I'm surprised you didn't get into any of the, I felt at times a little forced Jesus imagery, you know, like the, yeah. the Messiah stuff for the utopian. Even the name utopian is yeah. a little messianic. Um, and But that's super common superhero stuff. For sure. For sure. Yeah. You know, and there was even that, you know, there was even moments of sacrifice that were expected of them that you were like, oh, wow, they're really going to go there. Um, yeah. But I liked it. I mean, the costumes are ludicrous. And I, I think they could have had a better cinematographer or set designer um, come up with a look for it. Um, yeah. But I, I, I turned out, I was like, I really wanted, I was really upset when I realized that I was watching the last episode of the season. Yeah. Well, you know, and I think one thing on the code, because at, at one level, I thought the code aspect of thou shalt not kill under any circumstances and the way they introduced it was, 
you know, if, in my view, if it's a first episode of a multi-episode season, you can talk about the first episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the way they introduced it, where the utopian son saves the his own dad's life after this supervillain has killed two other people, right? Two other superheroes, like it made the code seem absurd. Yeah, like just absurd. But then, the more I thought about it as it went on, I felt like what was happening was that the utopian had said. If we open the door a crack, we could be the history's greatest monsters. Like if we, if we allow ourselves to indulge in the heat of the moment, the full fullness of our powers, we're going to be, you know, we're, we could just be monstrous. And so they created this incredibly strict code that was going to stand as a firewall against them becoming their own sort of unintentionally becoming supervillains. And I, I sort of saw that as interesting. Because it actually kind of reminds me of the way that a lot of very legalistic um, religious communities create sort of extra scriptural prohibitions on their own conduct to mm -hmm. prevent them from coming anywhere close to violating the true moral command. Right. And and so that's how I sort of thought of the code is like that's the, the he knows that it's not unlawful in all circumstances to kill. But because he doesn't want to find himself in a place where he's lawlessly killing, he's just not going to kill. And um, so I thought that was actually ended up being more psychologically interesting than I thought it would be. And I, but I totally agree with you on the costumes. There's something to be said for if you're going to have a darker superhero movie to not have a Marvel color palette, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, to go with sort of the more DC Snyder look. Yeah of the darker, you know, the blues and grays and all of that. Cause it looked like I was watching a Marvel movie that was trying to be somewhat DC ish. And it, you know, that, that was sort of off to me, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it's, um, um, I mean, the boys just does that stuff much better. Um, mm -hmm. you know, um, all right. I mean, uh, we could, we could, we could dwell on the code more, but I, I, I think, we can circle back to that another time. And finally <laughs> there's, um, the army of the dead, which yeah. was a Zack Snyder film. Um, we're not going to get into the Snyder cut justice league stuff. Uh, <laughs> we're not, but okay. I just, I don't know. We have time. I mean, we're going pretty long yeah, here and, and, but, uh, you know, Zack Snyder, Zack Snyder is your master now. And, um, <laughs> And he came out with a zombie movie, and we both we are both well established fans of the genre. Um, what did you think about it? So, what did I like um, a lot? Opening credits were great. Opening credits were amazing. The whole concept of sort of the like the evolution of the zombie from unthinking, you know, the idea of the zombie is something more than like unthinking. Um, person biting automaton right was interesting i thought that was interesting um but there was something about it it just was it felt like it just felt kind of like eye candy mm -hmm. you know um like there's a kind of movie that i'll go to superhero movie sci-fi movie or whatever that i'm sitting there and i'm enjoying it while i'm there it's fun to watch but as soon as it's over it's just out of mind. Like it's yeah. just gone. Like it just never happened. And that's, so I enjoyed it. 
I mean, I had fun watching it. There were some scenes that were pretty freaking incredible. There were some interesting twists on the zombie genre, but it just, after I turned it off, it was like, okay, you know, what's the score of the Lakers game? Yeah. So that's fair. That's fair for a comment. I, I'm, I'm harsher on it. Um, it's funny. <laughs> I remember, uh, remember the blaze, uh, was it blaze, right? That's the Wesley Snipes day walking vampire blade blade. What did I say? Blaze blade. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, the blade movies, which I kind of liked. I also like, I like vampire movies. Um, yeah, I liked them. And, um, all that said, um, there was, I remember my friend, Andrew Breitbart was the guy who first pointed out that, uh, if not the first one, then the second one, basically the entire logic of it was out of a video game. At mm. first, it's hard to defeat the, the first level kind of bad people. And then over the course of the narrative, it's actually very easy to defeat the first level people are the first level enemy, but the second level one gets hard. And then it becomes very clear that you can do that. And then of course, ultimately there's going to be the big boss who is really hard to defeat. Right. And that was how I felt about the, the army of the dead thing is that it was essentially, um, one of these sort of a, a choose your own adventure video game, but you didn't have a controller. And so you just had to watch it kind of unfold. And, um, but I agree with you. I like the opening credits. And I also think not only was the sort of, sort of coming up with a ecosystem of zombies that, that at least implicitly explains why there could be like smart ones and dumb ones, you know, drones versus queen bee for want of a better analogy. I like that. And I think there's a lot that could be done with that because, oh, so much. There's there's no reason to think that if there was actually I mean they, they leave it an open question whether it was alien life or whatever but like that actual model which is like applies to lots of insects makes a lot more sense than actually just reanimated dead flesh yeah uh, <laughs> you know but we're used to reanimated dead flesh so we don't think about how like that's actually more implausible than what they were talking about in that. Yeah, no, I, I thought that was like the, the best part of it. And, you know, th- that was a nice original twist. Yeah. Really enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, I think the video game analogy is a really good one. And I, I might like video games better than you. So, you know, it's not going to bother me, the sort of the leveling up. But the, that Blade analogy is really good. You feel like these guys sort of level up. Yeah to take on, you know, ever bigger, stronger bosses. Um, but yeah, you know, and the other thing I thought was there has to be somewhere between taking a Zack Snyder film and giving it to Josh Whedon Mm -hmm. and just letting Zack Snyder do whatever the heck he wants to do. Yeah. Like, is there a, is there a happy medium there? Yeah. Yeah. No, but I think that's right. I mean, I, um, I, 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 just want to make this one quick point. I think the first time you were on the remnant, if not, it was the second time I asked you, this was back. I think this was back when, um, some of the post liberal Catholic integralists were making fun of you for liking game of Thrones. Oh um, yes. And one of those guys was all offended because there was frontal nudity or whatever. And I, I, I asked you like, as a, 
as an evangelical who, you know, believes in this stuff passionately, like, how do you feel about watching this kind of stuff? And you use this analogy to how to basically alcoholism. Some people mm-hmm. can handle, you know, a drink in the evening without being overwhelmed by it. And other people can't. And the reason why I bring this up is one, I thought it was a good sort of explanation, but two, when you say that you might like video games more than I do, I think the truth is, is that I know if I get sucked into that world, I will not come out. And oh, really? Yeah. I played a lot of video games as a kid. Um, I really, I mean, up until like, I think about five years ago, you could still see the vestiges of a scar I had on the side of my thumb for 45 years from the reverse button on Defender, the video game, the arcade game. Um, <laughs> cause I built up such a callus on there and, and, um, and, uh, and, you know, one of the reasons why I don't follow sports as much as you guys, all you guys do is I wasted a lot of my youth on youth stuff. And when I decided I was going to sort of take my life much more seriously, it was very easy for me to cut out like college football and that kind of thing. Cause I was never that into yeah. it. And it's such an unbelievable time suck. Um, yeah. and then the other thing I gave up was basically video games. And I mean, I, I play stupid mobile games on my phone, but that's different than like getting sucked into, you know, these deep world building things, which I just know I would. So that's that. So you may, you may in fact love video games more than I do. I just know I have worse self-control than you do because I, I would lose my family if I, if I did that. Well, I, I, I never came close to losing my family, but I will say that I teetered on the edge for many years of, uh, appropriate video game time Yeah, <laughs> when it came to the world of Warcraft. Uh, I was, it's a fun game. I had a great guild. Like I was, I was all in and enjoy the heck out of it. But, um, there would be times I, I'll just say this. We had more than one conversation in our house, <laughs> <laughs> more than one. Um, so, well, you know, Charles Krauthammer was so addicted to online chess that he had to quit cold Turkey and stop playing the game entirely. Um, really? Yeah. He, and he was, he was a good chess player and he was just, he oh, was just, I bet. he's just, he got lost in it. So, all right. Um, we've gone long. I apologize to the listeners who didn't want the pop culture stuff, but then again, you probably stopped <laughs> listening, so I don't have to apologize to you. So, um, <laughs> Uh, David, thank you very much for pitching in at the last second. And um, uh, I will, I think I'll see you tomorrow on the dispatch podcast. So uh, that is correct. There's always that. And um, um, thank you again. Well, thanks for having me. I'm always, I think I get the jacket. I think you get the jacket, you know, and and, and in fact, we are actually sincerely looking for jackets. Um, Oh, that'd be amazing. Valerie's looking for it to add it to the merch store. Um, So we'll let you know like there's a big debate about whether we should do like the golf club blazer or go full gold LeMay like disco jacket and uh <laughs> i i i'm much more on team blazer but um we have not settled this question so that's i'll, I'll have to think about that because my my first you know my blink instinct is to go full like gold LeMay. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, well, I mean, maybe we can do both. We got to talk to Valerie about this. Imagine a live dispatch event in the ne- next several months where multiple people are showing up in gold LeMay remnant jackets. That, um, I'm not sure that's an image that sells me on getting the gold LeMay <laughs> <laughs> jackets, but um, we'll see. All right, so uh, David has left the studio, and um, I apologize if there was some ambient sound in the background. We weren't planning on recording at this time, so. Um, I, I couldn't put an end to that, all of that. Always great to talk to David. Um, there was some stuff I wanted to talk to him about, but I didn't get a chance, but I o- always have a, a, another opportunity because he will be back on again. Um, uh, please come by the dispatch and become a paid member if you can. Um, but at the very least, if you, even if you can't come check out our stuff, that's that you can only find there. And, uh, with that, um, thanks again to David French, and I'll see you guys next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.